0: This week on Dig Me Out but i keep on a coming here I stand in the dust stay and i'm always been shut the situation's getting everywhere no way but i'll not all the right favor i can play is as the streets i can with your hosts, Jason Zia and
1: Timonichi. Jay, we're back again with another episode. Thanks to our Dig Me Out Union at Patreon, you can help us make the next episode happen by joining us at Patreon.com forward slash Dig Me Out. Jay, it's been a while since we've had um, guests on the show that weren't people who uh, either joined us for a, a roundtable or for a a review mm-hmm and so it's been a,
2: almost a year right
1: i think so was it was uh what we had on uh, johnny Polanski last year mm-hmm. and um i know there was some craig, other folks but craig wedron craig wedron that's right that was was that last year wow that seems like I 10 think so. years ago yeah <laughs> that's right craig from shutter to think uh who has a new book out by the way of, of collection of photos from his 90s tour days oh that's cool yeah recently jay we had a poll it was our february album review poll yes That's where folks suggest records we put them into a hopper the hopper goes to our patreon community and they vote with comments on which album they think that we need to check out and this one was sometimes they're close sometimes it's like one vote separates them and it comes down to the last couple minutes of the poll this one was not that close
2: and I want to mention that uh, we've been doing this for what just under a year taking suggestions this is the only album that's been nominated twice we've had several artists be nominated twice but this is the only artist and album that's been nominated by two different people interesting (laughs) so a lot of interest in us talking about this one
1: yes the winner of our February 2019 poll was the album Soup by Blind Melon. Now, of course, if you have listened to this show, you have probably heard the name Chip Midnight. And that's because Chip, in terms of the founding pillars of this podcast, is responsible from basically season one, uh, getting us, helping us get on the map with the uh, interviews that he did and then the many roundtables he has joined us for, as well as some review episodes. He is back. We're happy to have him back. Chip Midnight, thanks so much for coming back with us.
3: Thank you so much for having me. Um, Obviously, one of my favorite albums, favorite bands of all time, so I'm really excited to talk about it.
1: And of course, Chip knows everybody. (laughs) (laughs) So when we told him, hey, that thing you said, if we ever do it, you wanted to be on the show, and we said, Chip, we're doing that thing. And he said, great. I know a guy. So also joining us from, I don't know, Parts Unknown. I, I didn't bother to ask because I'm a, a poor host. Christopher Thorne is joining us from By Mellon. Christopher, welcome to the show.
4: Gun. Thank you so much. Uh, from Joshua Tree.
1: Excellent. How is it doing? Yeah. I, I know that during the government shutdown, there was some damage done uh,
4: from some people yeah, bringing their... You know what? I, I went through the... Yeah, I went to the park a couple times. Danny Clinch was out here with his family, and we hung out a couple times in the park. And I didn't see any of that damage. I read and saw the same thing you're talking about. But when I went there, there was a bunch of rangers, and I said, "Are you guys working for free?" And they smiled and they said, "We're not allowed to say." And I said, "Well, thanks for being here." <laughs> so oh, wow. actually, when I was there, there, was tons of there was tons of like the rangers were still there watching out for the park, and I didn't see any
0: damage.
1: I like to imagine that they're like Walker, Texas Ranger, like, you know, heavily armed and like they're just staring people down like, don't mess with that tree, bro. Yeah,
4: they're, they're a little more mild than that, but they have a red hat for sure and they have a great outfit, so I, I could appreciate a great nice. outfit. Nice.
1: Well, we're excited to have you. This is a record that, like Jay mentioned, has been up for community discussion at our at our Patreon page. Jay and I both have history of this record because we were in college radio at the time when this came out back in 1995. And um, on a personal note, I remember when this record came out, I remember the video, I remember um, getting the record, and I remember also because my my roommate was a huge fan named Charlie. Charlie, I don't know if you're listening. Um, (laughs) But he was the one who introduced me to the band on the first record and he was like and this was meant in like the kindest way he's like I know you've seen that video and I was like yeah I've seen the video the No Rain video he's like you actually need to listen to the whole record because it's way different than that just that song and I was like okay Cause, and Jay and I were discussing this before the show another thing we were discussing there was so much music coming out in the 1990s that like you would yeah. see a yeah. band or an album and you'd be like well I'm, I'll I'll get to that but then 15 other albums would come out the next week
4: yeah I agree I agree.
1: So it took me a while to actually catch on to listening to the first record. Chip, I want to ask you, when did you first get hip to Blind Melon?
3: (laughs) How many hours we have?
1: Well, let's let's, let's try to tell the cadet stories.
3: Here's here's the quick story. So um, in the same week... In 1991, I, I think it was 1991, I saw Brett Michaels of Poison do a solo show at the Newport Music Hall in Columbus to about, I would guess, maybe 600 people. And then, like, two or three days later, I saw Nirvana play at Stashes, which was like a 200-seat club, and literally changed my life. Um, I mean, I still, even to this day, love 80s hair metal, but seeing Nirvana kind of opened my eyes to that there's more than just big hair and leather pants. So I became a... a Pretty big Soundgarden fan, and uh, I was writing for the Ohio State College paper, and Soundgarden was coming to town, and I had a really good friend from Cleveland, um, who has since gone on to a little bit of infamy. Um, Kim Say, she was on LA Inc. for two seasons. Uh, she's a tattoo artist. She was a friend of mine in high school, and uh, so I was in college, and Soundgarden was coming to town, and you know I was kind of like the uh, trying to show off and be like the the important college journalist. So I called up A M Records, and I. Put in an interview request, and A and M kind of laughed and said, "Yeah, um, so this is going to be a front page story for this for the student paper, right?" And I said, "Well, I don't know if that's going to happen, but you know, I, it'll be a story in the paper." And they said, "Well, yeah, they're only doing limited interviews right now, and and really like only like front page feature articles." So my dream was to hang out with Soundgarden <laughs> and show off to Kim how cool I was. And so I, I was like, so how can I how can I find out how, how can we meet Soundgarden if they're not going to do interviews? So I called up the uh, the Newport Music Hall and I asked them who was opening, and they said um, Sister Double Happiness and Blind Melon. I had not heard of either band. Uh, if I if I had decided to interview Sister Double Happiness, we would not be having this conversation right now, probably. <laughs> But for some reason, I was like, yeah, tell me, can you give me a, a number for this Blind Melon, whatever their publicist is, or however I can get in touch with them. And so I put in a call uh, to the publicist, Dominique. Um, she said, she was kind of surprised that I even had ever heard of Blind Melon. Um, she said, they don't have anything out yet, but I can send you a dubbed three-song cassette just to give you an idea what they sound like, and I can set up an interview. So, you know, fast forward uh, you know a week or two um like i said my my music ch- taste had been changing um the three songs uh just blew me away it's all i listened to just nonstop for weeks uh did a phone interview with um Shannon Hoon and uh i guess you can say the rest is somewhat history um you know i was a, it was one of my first interviews with a typical uh college journalist and you know i was asking about where did the name blind melon come from and who are your influences and I would say about 30 minutes into the call, we were just getting to wrap up, and um, the last question I had on my sheet was, uh, if you could put together a bill that had any band you wanted on it that you were part of, what would it be? And Shannon says, hold on a second, and he sits down the phone, and he asks the rest of the guys in the band who who would be on the bill, and he comes back, and I actually don't remember all the names, but he said um, Charles Manson would open with an acoustic set. And like... And, like, no joke, I had finished reading Helter Skelter, like, probably three days before this interview, and so Shannon and I just started talking about serial killers, and we talked for another 10 or 15 minutes about that, and, you know, it would have been just a re- regular interview with a band that probably would have been forgotten. Um, turned out to be, 28 years later, a friendship with these guys, so... That's the, uh, the shortish version of the long story. All because of common love feel, of serial I just, killers. Yes. I do
4: feel... I do feel a little used, though, Chip. I have to say. So basically, you used my band to get to Soundgarden. Which uh, I can't absolutely. Because I also, I also would have done the same thing to get to Garden, But uh, <laughs> I didn't know that story. That's amazing. Yes. Uh, yeah. I'm glad it worked out.
3: So, Blind Melon came to Columbus on because you guys, Blind Melon was doing like a just a couple of dates, right, with Soundgarden.
4: We did like a couple of weeks, I think, with them.
3: But I think Columbus was one of one of the first dates, and. So, yes. You guys was. came. You guys came. You guys came to Columbus, and I remember um, showing up as you guys pulled up, and I had a Charles Manson shirt on, and I think at first Shannon was probably like, "Who is this guy?" Like, <laughs> I don't think he put two and two together. And then, uh, then we, then I introduced myself, and we hung out. And then, Christopher, your ba- your van broke down, and <laughs> you guys were supposed to, be, you guys were supposed to be Cleveland the next night, and I think we were all working it out that like I was actually gonna drive some of you up and then somebody else was going to drive you up but you ended up getting the van fixed but we went up to Cleveland the next night to see you and I don't think we ever did meet Soundgarden.
4: That's funny. <laughs>
3: yes. <laughs> That's funny.
4: Did you wind up giving Shannon the uh, Ed Dean book?
3: Yes, I did.
4: Oh yeah. who? And then he went on to write the song Skinned which I wrote co-wrote with, with Shannon but uh, wow, yeah. Cool history, Chip.
3: Yes. And and you know, so He's I was looking at a few things. Yeah, so I was looking through uh, old Blind Melon tour dates, and I think I saw you guys probably 13 or 14 times, and when I think about it, I never saw you on the Soup tour. So it was all for the first album.
4: Yeah, we didn't do much touring on the Soup record. I mean, we did uh, a few weeks, and then Shannon passed away. Yeah. There aren't, there's uh, not a whole lot of shows out there, you know, on the Soup record. There's not.
3: But to Tim's point, I mean, you you guys... I saw you 13 or 14 times on the first album. Like, that's unheard of these days.
4: Yeah, we toured nonstop. When I think about our touring schedule back then, like, I don't really see bands doing it that way now. No. And uh, it was just crazy. I really don't have any memories of having any time off for a couple of years, for a few years, I would say. I mean, it was just, but we were all happy to do it. You know what I mean? We were 20 and just super pumped. It was just one tour after the next. And then if we did have 2 days off, we would fly back to LA and shoot a video and I'd turn right around and go back up to the tour, you know. Yeah. It was a crazy schedule.
1: Was that Soundgarden tour the first like major tour opening for a, a big band or had you guys toured before that?
4: That was one of the very first big ones. We I think we I think we did a Guns N' Roses tour of Mexico. Uh, the whole country, actually. We did like Guadalajara uh, and Mexico City and Monterey. And we went down there and played stadiums with those guys. But I think right after that, then maybe the next tour, I think, was that Soundgarden tour. So it was one of our first ones. As a matter of fact, I'll never forget the very first night we played a place called Mississippi Nights, which is an amazing place. And um, it might even be is it in, I think it's in St. Louis, actually. But anyway, we played And we didn't really know how strict things were and how, like, you know, we were just, like, winging it the whole time, you know? And when we toured with Guns N' Roses, someone told us where to go, when to get on, you know? So we didn't really have a tour manager. So I remember that first night, they were like, hey, you got to, you know, your set's from whatever, you know, 8 to 8.45. And uh, we just kind of got to the stage a little late, you know? We got there at, like, 8.30. And then they were like, well, you're going to play 15 minutes and that's your set. (laughs) And we were like, what, what? It was like a big revelation of, like, (laughs) <laughs> like, shit you know what I mean like this is like the real people are all professional out here on tour you know what I mean <laughs> so that's my memory but I remember we were obsessed with Soundgarden as well like Bad Motive Finger was just like we just couldn't stop listening to it you know it just sounded like the Beatles and Led Zeppelin to us it was like the most amazing combination yeah you know? Um. and Chris immediately took to Shannon because Shannon reminded him of uh, Andy Wood quite a bit you know oh yeah yeah. Well, they had a lot they had a lot in similar uh, they had a lot of similarities. But uh anyway, yeah, that was that is one of our first or second tours, I would say it's SoundGarden tour. And it was it was amazing. Chip, you ruined my
1: uh my my first question was gonna Sorry. be uh no, it's all right. Was gonna be uh you know, I don't think feel like we have to go deep into like the history of the band per se because I feel like this is a band that's fairly well known, especially to our audience that is very tuned into nineties music. But Christopher I'd like to talk a little bit about your upbringing like where you grew up (laughs) I was going to use what are your influences but that's not really (laughs) what the the uh the way I wanted to go but just like what what were you you know first drawn to musically that made you say I want to pick up an instrument or I'm interested in music as something more than just a listener
4: well, uh, I grew up in Pennsylvania in a small little town called Dover, Pennsylvania, like just out in the country, and I had horses, and grew up, you know, like that, and then uh, at some point, my mother was like into the folk scene, and she was having a, a piece of guitar around, and she would play me all these like Jim Croce songs, and you know, these little folk songs, People all marry Mary, and all this. And that's my first memories of the guitar, just being fascinated, it looked like magic to me, it just looked like a magic trick, you know, I remember thinking that at an early age. And then um, at some point I got like a Hondo guitar, and, and that's probably around, probably 13 is probably when I get the electric guitar. And then at that point, it's just on, everything else disappears, and, and around that same time I'll never forget being, uh, it was like a hot summer day and Pennsylvania can get just hot and miserable and muggy and gross. But we had this, like, this is so 70s, we had an intercom system in our house, like like you could project, like, radio through every room, you know what I mean? And then you could talk to each other, like you could push a button, as if our house was that big. It wasn't that big, by the way. (laughs) But it's just one of those things that people did in the 70s, you know? And I'll never forget um, hearing Sympathy for the Devil came on and like like i said we had this intercom and it would blast out through like the patio this big giant patio porch we had and i remember hearing timothy of the devil and it just from that point forward it just felt like the my dna changed and i just was obsessed whatever that feeling was it scared me it just made me want to do and live whatever that life was that that sounded like in that one song you know what i mean so um then it was just on for me, I was just absolutely obsessed I knew from an early, early age, I would say right at 13, I just was like, this is what I'm doing, no what I was obsessed, and you know, a bit OCD, and I would take my guitar to school every day, I had an amazing uh, music instructor in high school, and uh, I hated sports and all that bullshit, and uh, anytime I, he could get, he would always get me out of like other classes I didn't want to be in and I'd have a little study hall in this little music room that had a piano I bring my guitar to class um, to school every day. so I just you know that was it. It was just on you know from that point forward that was all I could think about and the early influences for me, you know like I said, you know sympathy for the devil, so immediately the stones and this is the eighties at some point so tattoo you comes out, you know and to this day I still that that record still hits me hard. that's for me is like the last great, you know. So then it was like Zeppelin three as i was obsessed with jimmy page and he made me want to play mandolin and, and play other instruments and he made me uh i was obsessed with like open tunings and all that sort of stuff that all came from jimmy page you know and then bob dylan that was the other one just as a songwriter i just thought he just seemed wicked to me he just seemed more punk rock than the punk rock that i've been hanging out in and DC and stuff in the 80s going to punk rock clubs, I just when I got turned on to Dylan I was like well, he seems more punk rock than punk rock, you know So that's um, that's it was that was that uh enough of a like a condensed version of how I got here
2: (laughs) So what were some of your early bands? What were those like?
4: I was in a band called R.O.T. This is like the 80s in Pennsylvania, so there's not a lot of choices, you know
0: Mm -hmm. So,
4: um, even though even though at that point, while I'm still living in Pennsylvania, I get turned on to Blood on the Tracks, which just completely changed my life as well overnight. That was another one that just was like a before and after moment for me playing the tracks. And um, But, you know, people weren't listening to stuff like that, where I was, and it was all, all metal. It was the 80s. So I was in like a heavy, heavy band called R.O.T., funny um and we were playing around you know i had fake id so i was getting into clubs (laughs) in baltimore and playing uh you know playing clubs and just loving it you know but it wasn't it didn't connect with the music i never really felt it you know i just felt like butt on the tracks and sympathy for the devil and Zeppelin 3 like that's where my that that was my movie but yet in pennsylvania the movie was like you know you know like you know heavy metal (laughs) you know what i mean big hair and that was still happening because Pennsylvania is always a little behind, you know. <laughs> and then when I moved to Los Angeles in 1988, you know, the first thing I heard, literally, the night I got there, my friend goes, this is what's happening in Los Angeles and he puts on the X record, the James Edition record. it just, it made me, it made me feel like the same, the Stones made me feel Sympathy for the Devil they literally are doing a cover of Sympathy for, De- for that record. So I was like, oh man, I just found my tribe. What is this? It sounded frightening and it just felt new and fresh and it wasn't metal, but it was like the next version of, you know, it just felt like a progression forward, you know. What took you out to LA? Um, I just, you know, like the super cheesy dream, you know, like, hey, I want to do, you know, I want a record deal, you know what I mean? Like the totally cliche, Hmm. I was smart enough to know it wasn't going to happen in Pennsylvania. I had been a bit of hustle in me. I just fucking was driven. I was driven, and I don't even know why. It's just I just was driven beyond being driven. And at the age, I went to college for two years, York, Pennsylvania College, York College. And then after two years, I just went to my parents and said, this is just, this is not it. It's not it's not my path. And I quit college and went to Los Angeles. I had a friend who had moved out a couple years earlier. And he was like, you got to come out. This is it, you know. And, and by then, he, this one guy named Jake Rivera, actually, he had turned me on to, um, he was a little older than I was, and he kind of turned me on to, like, what to read and what to listen to. And um, so he turned me on to, like, On the Road and, like, you know, all these great William Burroughs books and, you know, and um, all those changed my life, too, you know. And he was like, come to L.A. And I moved out to L.A., and I placed an ad. There was a music connection just before the internet. So there was a, how you connected with musicians was a, was a thing called music connection. So I placed an ad, it was for free, and I just was looking for a bass player. And the guy who answered my call was Brad Smith. And then uh, we became great friends, and maybe six months later he called me and was just like, hey man, I found the most amazing singer you have to come down with us. And I walked in and that was then at MSC. He played me change. And I was like, you wrote that song? You know, I had to write a song. <laughs> I was like, holy shit, fuck you. That's so good. <laughs> you know what I mean? I just felt like, oh man, the bar just got raised. That guy can write a song. And he also played me Jane Says, too. Huh. Yeah.
1: So, there's serendipity right there.
4: Um, And the stars got to line up in his business, you know. The stars got, got to line up, and they lined up. I mean, that I mentioned that, you know. I, I was dizzy, you know at that point I also I right, uh, joined a band called uh, The Daisy Chamber which was former members of Change uh, Addiction the bass player was in the band so I was learning I was a bass in that band. and thank God that I met Shannon I was like oh shit, shit should I should I stay in The Daisy Chamber or should I do this new project yeah. and I just thought Shannon was just you know and Brad I just I thought Brad was, can't, had become such a great friend mm-hmm. to me you know? and then when mm-hmm. we met shannon i just thought this is exactly the guy that i've been reading about you know in all my biographies and biographies are good you know
1: right yeah so you make the first record and from what i i didn't have the best memory but it came out it didn't do what the record label was expecting they put out some singles and then no rain came out comes out like significantly after so that about you a have year. To, yeah, how about it was like a, a year. Which is crazy to think about now when you think about the time in which albums have to sort of, you know, be out there in the public before they're determined to be successful or not and how long record companies will, you know, push singles from a record. Yeah. But then you have to go tour it again. And really, if you're a year into a record, you're starting to think, well, now we're going to maybe start thinking about a second record. But then you've got to go tour because you've got this hit single and the album starting to sell had you guys started thinking about a second record at that point Were you starting to work on material or did you just put that all off to just go tour and you know no i mean success?
0: we
4: we had all been writing and um i think that was a big frustration for for us is is like don't get me wrong we were grateful that we had a hit but by then we had toured so much nonstop that we just were ready to make another record but then the hit happened. So we went out and toured for another year. Or so, but by then, you know, a little bit of money had rolled in. So I had, I bought a, uh, like a recording studio that I could take on the road. I mean, back in those days, it was five feet tall. These days it's a laptop and, you know, a briefcase. But back then I had this giant road case. And at that point I was rolling it into hotel rooms and, so a lot of the Nico record that came out after Shannon passed away is the, are those recordings that I um, was just grabbing sort of here and there and all over the place. And some of it uh, turned out to be demos for the Soup record. So we were writing and we were, you know, we, 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 had, we had some new songs, which is the reason why at Woodstock we're playing the song Soup, which was one of the first new ones that we had written. I'd given Shannon a tape probably, you know, at some point near the end of that you know crazy no rain hit uh, with a bunch of songs Uh, just music like I just worked up musically everything and um, and I think Soup was one of the first ones that he had written written on and then right after that we went to Mammoth and that's when we finished Soup actually right kind of right at the end of all this crazy touring we had done
1: and the majority of the I guess the final not the demos but the the Final recordings were done in New Orleans, right? With, at uh, Daniel Lois' spot.
4: Was it Kingsway? Exactly. We, we, that... uh, we, yeah, we, we did the demos all over. We did a lot of the demos in Mammoth, but then, when we actually decided to make the record, we, um, you know, Rogers, Glenn, and Brad were all living New Orleans at the time, and Shannon was in Chicago, I believe, and I was in Seattle, so it just made more sense to make a record there, and they went there and showed us pictures and we just completely fell in love. You know, it was a mansion in French quarter. It doesn't, doesn't get any better, you know?
1: Well, I think you can, I mean, it's been written about in both reviews then. And then also I've read some retrospectives like 20 year later, retrospectives about how the city sort of influences the sound of the record. Whereas I don't think, I can't think of any contemporary records from 1995 that, imbue the sound of New Orleans on an alternative rock record the way that you guys do um, you know I'm thinking of like the the next one that I can really think of is probably like the Afghan Wigs 1965 is like the next one where I can hear the sound of a band sort of embracing uh, the, the traditional music in some ways of, of New Orleans um, did you you know spend t- enough time in the city? Were you able to, like, take in the the culture and, and the various clubs?
4: Yeah, in a big way. Because, because three of the guys lived there, you know, any time we had to get together to rehearse for a tour or, you know, when we got together to write songs to all kind of come together to get ready to make the record because three of the guys were living in New Orleans, we just, um, Shannon and I, for a long time, for months and months, I lived in the Pontchartrain Hotel. Shannon, Shannon lived there as well. Um, and then at some point, I moved into a back house that Rogers had, but then Glenn also had. But anyway, I had my own place. So yeah, no, we uh, we lived there. And then Kingsway is a house, so Shannon and I lived in that in the that house in, in the French Quarter while we were making the record. So no, we... Um, we uh really soaked it up it's great that you mentioned um the afghan wigs because greg's a good friend of mine and i've been working with greg for the last five years i think i've made the last three two or three afghan wigs record two i can't i lose track because i work with greg all the time (laughs) but anyway he's a good friend and, and i i literally uh have been working on a new on his new record right now
1: um would you like to uh tell us a little bit about that (laughs)
4: <laughs> no not no not yet it's, it's not it's not for me to tell yet but uh it just was a cool reference that you uh tied in blind melon and, and the wigs because greg is just a great great friend and uh we work together all the time so it's just nice to nice to hear us in the same sentence well we're jay and
1: i are big wigs fans so that's uh that's awesome yeah to hear. i am
4: too he's a friend but i i'm a fan first you know but he's, he's a good friend but i'm a fan
1: comment from one of our folks over at patreon um since we're into talking about the record now and it's from uh, patrick testa he said blind melon soup is one of the best albums of the decade in my opinion it takes the great guitar driven sounds of the 70s and embellishes that with technical brilliance and a distinct 90s flair it's groovy hard edge, delicate choppy and progressive Shannon Hoon harkens back to Robert Plant in an Axel Rose-ish way, but creates a perfect amount of mystique in his delivery and lyrics that the meanings seem to be graspable, but ultimately reach out just a bit beyond our fingertips. That's the recipe in popular music that churns my artistic butter. So, that was an interesting... So, wait, wait, what? Hey, hey I, Bud, I gotta... by
0: the way,
4: by the way what, a, what a great writer that guy is. Who that <laughs> guy is? That was so... Beautifully written. I I yeah. Patrick I Patrick is bet. a very
1: fine writer. Chip can agree.
3: Yeah, and so um back in those days, uh, probably for like three or four years straight, anybody and everybody that I met, the first thing I asked was, have you have you heard Blind Melon? And if not, let me let me W a cassette or go buy it or whatever. And I'm pretty sure that that's I probably turned Patrick onto Blind Melon. Um I think I feel like Patrick and one of my roommates were friends, um, so we kind of ran in some of the same circles at some point back in those days, and i that was a long time ago, so maybe I'm totally wrong, but i we definitely know each other from college and um, have mutual friends, so I wouldn't be surprised if, if I turned him on to that.
4: I, I like what he said. <laughs> Thanks for the compliment.
2: <laughs> it's like six degrees of Chip night.
4: It is. Yep. Yep, it related right. everybody. Totally.
2: Now, I know you don't know Darren Leach because he's in Australia, right? <laughs> I'll read his comment, let's see. No Rain was overplayed on Triple J Radio here in Australia. They rarely, if at all, played anything else off the album. Um, and, and then Patrick follows up with No Rain was on their debut. Soup was their second album. Try it out. Basically saying Galaxy was the lead track and the single. I remember the video being great fun, although I haven't viewed it in decades. Um, so Patrick uh, is getting Darren to give it a shot. And that was, I think, some of the comments that you know we saw was... Um uh, everybody familiar with the first record and then being intrigued basically by the feedback about this record that they need to go back and check it
1: out.
4: Yeah. Yeah, I didn't really get the look when it came out. You know, Shannon passed mm-hmm. away a month into it, so and that was it. Career was over.
1: So here's the thing that I in in revisiting this record I hadn't listened to it in a little while. And like I said, I got it when it came out, and then I got Nico when that came out as well. Um when I listen to the record now, and this is something that Jay and I have discussed on on a number of records in the '90s that didn't necessarily sell well, but have remained or become sort of critical favorites over the years, is that I don't hear the blatant single like that I do with the first record. I you hear "No Rain" and you go, "Duh, that's that's such an, a yeah. radio yeah. single," and you can even hear that with like "Change" in in some respects what I hear is a yeah. great collection of songs and each with their own sort of unique um, sounds and really cool riffs here and there and really cool uh, arrangements that you don't hear on a lot of traditional sort of alt rock yeah. records from the nineties. But did you guys struggle with the fact that I, I had read that, you know, you've, you had the success on the first record. You kind of felt like we're going to go for it on the second record and do what we want to do. But does that also mean we're not going to pay attention to writing a radio-friendly pop song, and that we're just going to go where our muse takes us, so to speak?
4: Yes, what you just said is exactly it. You know, I mean, but well, let me tell you something. On the first record, we never even heard the word single like that. Just like back in those days, like you know, we just did what we did. We had the coolest A and R guys, and like. I don't know, I never even heard the word. It was never like, you guys need this or need that. It was like, just be who you are. And luckily enough for us, Brad delivered, you know, No Rain, and then Shannon delivered Change. So we had two what appeared to be singles without us being conscious of it in any way. So then, when the success happened, I think, and and I think we were grateful for the success, but also frustrated that all the focus was on this one song called No Rain, and we had felt, you know, we just felt like there was some other great songs on the record, and you know, so much of the focus was on that one song. So I think when we went into the super record, one at that point we had plenty of dough, and we never cared about that anyway. So it's not like in our minds we're not like, oh, we need to like, we need a you know, a bigger house. So let's go write a single. We we're like, fuck, let's go make art. You know what I mean? And I think in a weird way we.
5: We were pushing against the
4: fact that we had this giant single that was became bigger than the band. It was it was you know it was crushing us. You know the b Girl was bigger than us. You know <laughs> and it, we just felt overwhelmed by it. You know what I mean? And I imagine the frustration for Shannon, who was an incredible songwriter, and Brad had written No Rain, but you know you have some other real gems there from from Shannon. You know I think we thought Change was going to be a bigger hit, but by then No Rain was such a big hit it wouldn't go away.
0: So, yeah,
4: when we made the Soup record, we were like, fuck it, we don't even care about singles, who cares, whatever. And unfortunately for us, at that point, Capitol Records had
0: changed
4: presidents. So we went from having the most
0: amazing guy named
4: Hale Negro, who was so supportive and just said, just be who you are. He never said the word single or anything like that, ever. Um, they nurtured us in such an amazing way and just told us to go right, it's all to Big banders band, it was incredible. So then Gary Groos comes in, and, um, you know, we, he didn't sign us. We were just on his roster at that point. And
5: when we delivered the Super Record, we were like,
4: here it is, bam, deal with it. And Gary came back and said, uh, there's a song called Pool, which I had written with Shannon. Uh, and he said, I think maybe that could be a single if you would rework it. And we are like, no, we don't. We've never re- reworked a song, and we're definitely not going to start now. And that was the end of that conversation. And then, um, I remember our release date getting pushed back because he had just signed the Foo Fighters, the brand, brand new Foo Fighters, and uh, that record wanted to come out the same date. We wanted to come out, and I was pushed back. And I was thinking, uh-oh, we're not the priority anymore. <laughs> and then, um, you know, they didn't support the record just because we didn't deliver it, you know. And um, I don't blame them. Now that I'm older and I've been in the business long enough, I'm like, yeah, sure. I mean, if they can't get something at radio, then your chances of them pushing it and selling it for you are going to be a little less. You know, they thought they had something with Galaxy, and but even those songs are weird. They're not normal pop songs, you know. No,
1: Galaxy's not. It's funny because listening to it now and realizing it was the lead single, and I'm like, this is such a weird song. It's got the it's it's disjointed, and it's it totally. changes tempos totally. and. Totally. it's yeah, it's but it's a cool song, yeah. and if you're a music fan, yeah. you're like, oh, this is super, you know, this is hitting all my buttons. Weird and
5: cool. But
1: yeah. Yeah. I can imagine, I mean, this is Jay and I were discussing, if you look at the three-month span of when this record came out, so you look at July, August, and September, you've got the, you mentioned the Foo Fighters record, you've got the first Garbage <laughs> record, you've got, which is just yeah. chock full of radio singles. Um, you've got oh, oh, yeah. Breakthrough Records by 311 Se- 7 Mary 3 Dishwalla I mean it is just like Breakthrough album And they all have that one key ra- Super radio friendly single Single That yeah. even When you're not even factoring in the big artists Like David Bowie has an album out Prince has an album out You know all those types of people I can see why this would just get like absolutely lost Because it's a record that takes You have to take time with it And you have to sort of sit with it yeah. and, and in, ingest everything that's going on in the same way not to go you know we go back to the wigs a lot but the wigs records are not immediately poppy or uh you know yeah, digestible no. you have to sit with those records sometimes especially i think like honky's letter comes out or not honky's Ladder, black love comes out in 96 and that's a very like dense record compared to what was going on in pop radio and in alternative radio it's
4: heavier it's, yeah. yeah it's darker it's heavier there's more to it the lyrics are better <laughs> yeah but that doesn't always get to the radio
1: Ex- yes exactly so when i'm listening to this yeah. i'm listening to this to like what's like really connecting with me and i'm there's so much interesting guitar stuff going on and i'm wondering like uh, for example, uh, was one of the tracks that caught my ears was uh, toes across the floor. You I think it's you you're doing this when the when the song kicks in, there's like this guitar lead that goes on. Um it's to I think it's doubled. It's like in the left and right channels. Jay, do you know what I'm talking about with that song? With the uh, it's like this stabbing guitar.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's and it's hard there's a lot of instruments on this record too. So there's sometimes things happen where um, I don't know if they're guitars or banjos or mandolins or two, which is kind of cool. I mean, you're pulled in and out. Um, is that how much of that? Who's playing all that stuff? Is a lot of that you?
5: Um, I play some banjo and of course mandolin and block and, and and things like that. But you know, Rogers, I rather than I just have a way of playing around each other. We don't really talk about it. We don't even look at each other. I just. I listen to him and he listens to me and we just kind of like I try to find a hole and you know what I mean we just try to like I don't know we snake around each other it's a weird thing it's, I can only do it with him there's no guitar player that I can kind of play like that with you know but for some reason it just it just works I think we were really in tune at that point maybe more so than the, than the first record I would say I thought like I was really in tune with Rogers and how he played and how I could snake around him you know
0: and now tell me why am I alive If I'm home firm and feel the right to let
2: and there's a lot of like um i guess talk a little bit about uh it's interesting that there's a lot of subtlety um which i think we're hitting on here but even within the guitar tones um so you know there's a couple of riffs on here like galaxy for example that are if done by other bands they would probably overdo it and it would get overly heavy um yeah. with a lot of distortion and like down tuning, and I mean, that riff could be that's a metal riff, <laughs> like if you want to choose to play it that way. Um,
5: exactly, but you know what? If you guitar is clean, then yeah, it's a different thing,
4: you know what I mean? And that was, yeah, always, I
5: was always, I was always, uh, you know, pushing against sort of those metal riffs, you know what I mean, things like that. And for me, um, doing that it's hard to play with a cleaner guitar sound, I would tend to go for the cleaner guitar sound because it just pulled it. And they I just pulled it in uh, one step that had like a park hat. You know And I mean, it was a little more country as opposed to just being straight up metal. And it's all really in the sound of the guitar, you know. You hear this record. Of, of, of my guitar is really clean at night times, you know. It pulls it away from Alice and Chains and Sand Garden and Pearls and all those other guys that kind of have big, giant guitars, you know. I was listening to Dylan, so I was playing a Telecaster through a Bandmaster or a 67 Bandmaster, so, you know. I was going for a different sound, even though some of those riffs were straight up metal.
2: (laughs) Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, because there's always that, like, uh, you can hear that pushback. Like, there's a tendency there where you hear, um, you know, an idea for something that could get much more aggressive, but then there's a pushback with the cleaner guitar sound to say, no, 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 like, bring it down. Like, make it more subtle, which is really cool. Yeah, thank you. One
1: of the things that I didn't pick up on, because I wasn't as seasoned a listener back then I didn't have a frame of reference I guess was this record doesn't have like a time stamp on it in terms of I listen to a song like Lemonade and that could be straight out of the 70s or some of the other songs they don't have like a time period in terms of the 90s can get stamped with a certain sound um, I
5: completely agree.
1: I don't know if it's in the production or in the guitar tones. It
4: it's both. It's it's all the above. And I have to say, I was just obsessed with not sounding dated at that time, you know, because right around that period of time, like the late 80s, and early 90s, you have these, like, digital reverbs. So all those metal bands are going, like, kapow! They have these giant reverb sounds that just sounded so dated, you know. And I think we were all in tune to... Uh, Make a record sound like our favorite records, which were all from the sixties and seventies. So we just wanted like a very classic sounding record, you know. And I'm really grateful that we didn't go for because if you listen to Rick Parashar's production on the first Pearl Jam record, you know, giant snare sounds. It's 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 got one tiny foot in metal. Some of the sounds do, but yet you know they're doing something different, so it feels fresh but uh with us we were like nope you know dry drum sounds like everything i wanted to be everything to be dry you know real tight and dry and um you know the nuances of all the playing and all that all that stuff going on so i i you know we got lucky i do remember being real conscious of it i just wanted something that sounded classic and i'm really grateful that it doesn't sound dated because you know, there's still some records from that period of time that are great songs, but when I hear them, production-wise, I go, "Ooh, god, that is just so." You know, the stamp, as you're saying, you right, know? right.
2: So that connects for me to. Um, I wanted to ask about working with Andy Wallace first. Making, how did you guys make that decision? And then, I mean, he has a history of working with Rick Rubin, which you know, his records are the better ones are known for for that being, cl- you know, classic, simple you know the cult electric comes to mind in terms of just you know trying to distill things down to their purest sense and using the most honest tones you can talk a little bit about working with him and how did you guys decide to change producers for this record
4: you know we just there was no there was no reason like we had nothing against rick we had an amazing success and had an amazing time with rick so um we just wanted to mix it up and for us at that point, I remember Shannon and I were obsessed with, with uh, Mario Caldetta, who I'd met recently, who was a, a friend of a friend, and he had done those Beaky Boys records and Paul's Boutique, and, you know, we just, I just loved what was happening, it felt so fresh and new and the sounds production-wise, just felt so fresh to me. But the record company was like, uh, yeah, no, no, that ain't (laughs) ain't, ain't gonna happen. (laughs) Um, I think that scared them a little too much, you know what I mean? Although I think we would have made a great record. But, so they suggested Andy and we met Andy, and um, I remember when we met Andy, he said, here's the last record I just did, and I went home and I heard Grace. And I was like, my God, man, the bar has changed, you know, Jesus Christ. It was a perfect record for me in every way. Production, songwriting, performance, engineering, everything about it was just incredible. So I, I thought Andy was the shit, you know? And so yeah, so it was, I wouldn't say haphazard, but it was like the record it was like, you should meet Andy. We met him, we're like, you're cool, great, let's make a record, you know? It was like that. We didn't meet with like five other people.
1: One of the things that Jay and I talk about a lot on the show is is the format and how the transition from vinyl to CD sort of changed the way that bands looked at albums in the nineties and especially how the length got abused on certain records.
4: Completely. Completely.
1: And this is a record that's under 50 minutes, which I'm Jay and I are very happy about that because so many (laughs) records are now in the 60, 65, 70 minute range that we, we review week. No doubt. And they're you know 16 tracks long, and then there's a 25 minute space of blankness, and then there's a right. bonus track, and then you know right. it's it's know. just so much. So were you guys conscious of that when you were making the record? Like we're not, even though it's 14 tracks, it's a tight 14 tracks. Um, was there any thought? Yeah, about- we,
4: we, we yeah we we were because somebody tipped us off to the fact that the record company is only paying you, it was an old system, so if you deliver 20 songs, they're paying you on 10. So you're not getting twice the amount for publishing, you're getting the same amount, no matter how many songs you deliver. So I remember that stuck in our heads, so we're like, we're not giving away some sort of record company. fuck that. You know what I mean? So I think for us, we, we had like slight business hat on, we were like, we ain't making a fucking long record, hell no, you gotta pay us again, we want a new advance and we'll give you a new record, and you're gonna pay us again. You know what I mean? I No, like luckily for us, Shannon uh, was friends with Axel, so we had been, you know, tipped off to some business things in the business that maybe other bands, you know, I, I wouldn't have known. You know what I mean? So, um, that was probably one of the reasons. Because we had some you know, we had other songs. You know, what I mean the soup record this literally the song soup's not on the soup record, the song P- pool is not on there. I mean there's plenty of songs that we had. But we wanted a tight little record, even though that was not the trend. We still wanted one. Right.
1: Now, Chip, I'm curious because you mentioned that you got that three-song demo, and I know you're you know obviously then a fan of the, the first record. This is a different record. How did this impact you when you first got this record, with it being different from the first record?
3: Yeah, it, de- it definitely was different. I loved it. Um, again, back in those days, like this was pre-internet, so... Uh, poor Capitol Records publicity department probably got a call from me every week, week and a half, like, hey, do you have the advanced cassette yet for the new Blind Melon album? Um, and I remember running to the mailbox and getting it, and uh, yeah, it was such a different sound, but um, like Christopher said, I think they had played some of the songs, so it was, I, I knew kind of the somewhat of the direction they were headed. Um, my now-wife girlfriend at the time, and I went to see blind melon at woodstock and uh wait you went to woodstock
1: in
4: 94 yes i did oh we played two by four was also one of the newer songs we had been playing a lot
1: i can't believe we didn't know that all the way all this time
3: and 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 i i i I kid you not like i went to see blind melon i mean obviously i that was a no-brainer to me um and so i woke up early we got in the night before and um I don't expect Christopher to remember this at all, but uh, I got pretty close to the front, and uh, about I don't know three quarters through the set. I then Christopher, you looked down and you saw me, and you kind of like had this uh, surprise, like "What are you doing here?" kind of thing, um, yeah. which is awesome. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, but, you, but they played Blind Melon played a couple of new songs, so I kind of I kind of knew what was coming. And then you guys also did some dates with the Rolling Stones, and on an off night, you played in Cleveland after Woodstock at the college and uh i think he played i think he played dump truck there because i remember i remember calling capital and asking if that song was going to be on the record and they were kind of like how do you know about that song so (laughs) um so i kind of had an idea but, but even but like i had not heard galaxy or toes across the floor and those sort of just blew me away with just how what a different sound it was for this band that that i had invested so much time into that it was it was exciting it was great that it wasn't a a kind of song-by-song follow-up. I'm glad there was no rain part two. I love
1: that you're calling Capital, talking to some secretary, and she's like, sir, I don't know if it's going to be on the record, sir. I just work in the mailroom.
3: No, it was a a publicist, um, (laughs) Dominique, and uh, because, like I said, oh, yeah, And, and, and I saw, like I said, I saw Blind Melon probably 13 times, and because there was no internet, I would call... Because I knew they were touring so much, I would call her all the time and be like, "Hey, uh, new dates? Are they coming to Ohio?" And like, inevitably, every time I call, she'd be like, "Oh, actually, yeah, they are. They're coming to Cleveland, or they're coming to Cincinnati, or Columbus." So, yeah, we became we became good friends, Dominique and I, for for a couple years. That's awesome. <laughs> can I can I jump in? So yeah, I remember I remember too um, the song Saint Andrew's Fall. So I remember seeing Blind Melon. Towards the, oh man, I don't remember when, touring cycle. It had to have been kind of towards the end of the first album tour up in um, Detroit. And coincidentally, it was the same time that Soundgarden, like I had an advanced cassette of Soundgarden's, uh, why can't I remember the name Down of the Down on album? the
1: Upside? Super undone? Was the one that had? Which is, which, what song? Ty Cobb? Uh, that's on Down on the Upside.
3: yeah. So we listened to it an advanced cassette on the way up to Detroit. And then, uh, and I don't know if it was like that same visit in Detroit, but I remember Shannon after the show telling me that, didn't you guys like watch somebody jump off of a building in Detroit? We did. And that's what.
5: Yeah, that's what that song's about. And, and that's that, what inspired yeah, we, uh, the song, uh, after right? A, after the show one night, we saw Brooklyn at CSX. It was one, it was just one guy off of the building, across from our dressing room we could see it from the dressing room
3: so I did wow. know I mean I, I I knew the story behind that song like when it came out and you know it's like wow like I remember hearing the story shortly after it happened and then and there was a song about it yeah yeah
0: but if I could buy the sky Staring straight
2: in the eyes of Jesus Christ This record is Pretty dark lyrically Like I think it's a little On the surface you don't quite get it uh, That it's that dark until you start Digging into things um, Is that a pretty good reflection Of where you guys were at the time? I mean there's some
4: Yeah I think you're totally yeah. accurate I mean you yeah. know absolutely You know, we, uh, You know we we're having a time of our life because it happened for us, but there was a lot of drugs around, and we weren't always along. You know, and it just was—you know—we were making fire for sure. But with that was uh, a lot of crazy. You know, there was a lot of crazy. There was a lot, a lot, a lot of crazy around that New Orleans record. I mean, it just was. It was just crazy at all at, at all points. So yeah, and. You know, you can hear Shannon struggling, you know, he knows he's a, you know, awful addict and he's, you know, either in rehab, out of rehab, you know, breaking sobriety, in sobriety, you know, he's going through a lot, you know what I mean? And then on top of that, you're like a 20 year old kid, you have a bunch of money, you are buying a house and, you know, your whole life is just fucking weird, you know? So I hear all of that in those songs, you know, for sure.
3: Were you, were you? consciously aware of that when you guys were writing the record or is it like you look back i remember when i after shannon passed i went back and, and like really paid attention to the lyrics that i had been singing along with and not really paying attention and and like jay and tim said like i could i was like oh wow this is really like what happened with shannon is not a huge surprise now that i'm taking time to sit and read the lyrics and, and you could tell that he was going through a lot
5: yeah
4: i had the same reaction like after he passed away, and and now when I hear those words, I'm like, God damn, he's just over there shouting about it for God's sake.
0: Yeah. And it was
4: just such a normal part of our day and a normal part of our, you know, crazy existence that it just didn't seem crazy. I remember waking up, not you know, waking up at whatever, you know, two o'clock in the afternoon one day, and having breakfast in the kitchen and shannon's still up from the night before and he's cooking cocaine on the stove as i'm pouring my milk in the kitchen and, it, and at, at no point did i think well this is weird i just was like hey man okay cool see you later on yeah. tonight at eight when we track you know what i mean this was it became such a normal part of our life but yeah when i take a step back as an adult man i'm like oh my god we were out of our fucking minds and like no one was really saying like, hey guys, time out. Because you know what? We were a giant cash cow and everyone was just kind of letting us do whatever the fuck we wanted. You know, we kind of knew that. Shannon definitely knew it. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah.
4: Um, so yeah, I, I definitely see it in a different way now when I hear those lyrics and, and, and read it. But I do know in the moment, it was just crazy crazies at all times. But we had lived in that crazy crazy for so long, it just felt like a normal day to us. But now, when I look back, I go, "That was there's nothing normal about
0: that." Yeah. Uh,
1: unfortunately, I think that that's the tale of so many bands that they get success and they get that free reign from the people around them, and they a lot of bands implode that way. I mean, the fact that it, you're still a- able to make a record and put out material, some bands don't even they self-destruct so much they don't even get to that point
4: they never make yeah, that record you could really lose yourself you really lose yourself at that point. and you know you know when i step when i step when i step away from it and I, I look what's happening you just go like man you're making a bunch of people money and everyone just wants to keep you happy and they wanted to keep the wheels on you know what i mean keep it going keep it going you know what i mean we're all getting rich here you know what i mean so you definitely right. now when i look back i'm like oh man that wasn't cool like but whatever, that is the business, and that's kind of what you sign up for. But, uh, you know, you can get lost in that, and, and it cannot work out for you, you know? Um, but much- I also felt like we were making great art, you know what I mean? So I wasn't complaining at the time, you know? I knew we were getting pushed, and we were working what felt like all the time, you know? But I just felt like we were I don't know, we were really firing on all pistons when we were making that super record. I mean, as crazy as we were, the amount of drugs and all that, we were really... When we got together, we were getting shit done and writing songs, you know Jay, were you gonna
1: say
2: something? Uh, I was just gonna ask, um, just to clarify, how much time between when you guys meet the band Forms and uh, No Rain Finally Breaks, how much time is that? A couple years?
4: Well, oh god, that's a good one Um, You know, we, we took a good You know, the record company was so cool back then. You know, we got a record deal, and they were like, you guys have no songs, and you're barely a band, so go hang out in the house. And we went to New Orleans and all hung out for a few months and wrote songs and did, you know, did little dates here and there, tiny little clubs. We we were just kind of getting our crap together. So that went on for a good, I don't know, maybe that was like eight months or so. And then um, we made an EP with David Briggs that never came out, Cause that just wasn't so happening. And then, so yeah, maybe it's a good year before we even made the first record, mm-hmm. you know? And then, um, and then we toured for a good year and then some probably before No Rain ever was a hit. You know? So it's,
2: that's still relatively quick. I mean, to go, I mean, you essentially know each other for two years and then all of a sudden you're you're basically operating as a business like at this point like we're all making money at this and now we have a bunch of responsibility and we have to like figure out how we're going to make art and make money after only knowing each other for two years that's kind of crazy
4: yeah 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 no it 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 it, it was it was a lot of transition for us and you know things change the second the money comes in because you're like oh that's what that means if if i get that much on that song and you get you know like all that kind of changed the way we wrote songs together and everything kind of changed, you know? And honestly, when I say to people, you know, when you go on the road, like one year on the road is like 10 years, man. It's just, you live 10,000 lifetimes when you go on the road. It's just, it's, you know, you really do. So you come back real different people, you know? So, you know, for that couple of years of touring, you know, before you're making the super record, you're just different. You're different in every way. So when people ask me like, why did the super record sound that way? I'm like, I don't know. We, we never were really together enough to sit down and discuss how we were going to sound. That's just who we were individually at that point. And that's just us in a room together. We were writing individually at that point, but when we were bringing the songs in, they'd get worked up in a in a really cool way and everyone would be a part of them, you know?
3: The, the other thing, though, too, but is. I think is that's before... why the that
4: record's so different.
3: Sorry. Um, even before the first record came out, though, you guys also did the 120 Minutes tour. So. You, I, I saw you a couple times before the record even came out. Like you guys were on the road pretty heavily even before our record was out.
4: Yeah, we did six weeks uh, with Rick Parasher in Seattle the very beginning of our record, and then literally in the middle of making our record, there was like, you got the hundred twenty minute tour, so we went out on a tour for six weeks, and then after that tour, we 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 came back and cut basically the back half of the record. Um, and we were a real different band after just that one tour. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, um, but, uh, yeah, so we were, we were, it was just nonstop. You know what I mean? That's not normally, normally people don't leave for a tour in the middle of a record, but yeah. it just worked out that way. And it was an amazing opportunity. Um, so we,
3: Jay tried. and Tim, do you, do you guys know that tour? Uh, I don't know who was Who's on it. it? Big go Audi, Big they dynamite PIL. Oh Live. yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. They played it in Dayton at um I think Hera Arena maybe. Yeah. Probably
1: if it was Dayton, yeah. That's the big spot where it was. Yeah.
4: It was cool and now that looking back on it I realize what an incredible uh what incredible innovators they were. Like I remember seeing Big O Dynamite, I was like, What's that DJ on stage? Like what the hell? Like, well, <laughs> you know, let get that, guy. get that guy off the goddamn stage. How stupid. And then, you know, and this is like, man, this is 91. I mean, you're talking about a good long time before, you know, Incubus and all those bands have DJs on stage. You know what I mean? You're talking over 10 years. You know what I mean? So they were ahead of the curve. Um, We were taking ecstasy like every day and they had a DJ and it was a dance party, ecstasy ecstasy, ecstasy party every night. (laughs) That was that tour.
1: Okay. That was, that's definitely very 90s for it a... totally. <laughs> of course so in researching uh the sort of i guess i wanted to see where the band is across the modern distribution systems because um, sometimes jay and i are amazed at bands that are not included in streaming or you, keep, you know, we'll ha- we'll have random artists where certain albums won't be available or that sort of thing. Yeah.
0: And, and
1: when I went to yeah. Spotify for the band, No Rain has 125 million <laughs> plays. Um, that seems like a lot to me. It also has 30 million views of. Uh, of the video for No Rain, 31 million, sorry, went up a million since I looked, uh, on YouTube. Do those sorts of things actually make any sort of impact? I know there's a a huge fight between Spotify and, you know, the streaming services um, in terms of what they're actually paying and then who's actually seeing that money. Um. So, is I guess you know, are is curious. Is is that something that you're actually seeing any benefit from, from having your video on absolutely. 30 million times? Okay.
4: Yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. The money. You know, we never sold our publishing, so we we own our publishing. So anytime somebody streams it, we're getting we're getting directly paid, as opposed to going through somebody else who's getting paid first and then us getting paid. You know. So, um. Although part of it does go to the company, but um. But yeah, no. I mean. I don't understand all that stuff, honestly. Like, you know, I have a son who's 13 now, and he goes like, "Whoa!" Like, he tells me I should be impressed with those numbers, which I don't really understand. Like, you know, your Spotify numbers are this. Wow, that's great. I like, I'm like, I don't understand that at all. <laughs> well, okay, I'm just gonna write songs. I don't, you know, it doesn't mean anything to me other than. I think that's cool, man. I'm really blown away. I'm really flattered. I mean, I'm grateful people are still listening to that song. It blows my mind. When I do compare it to other people, when I didn't understand it, someone's like, well, compare it to this or that. I was like, oh, wow, yeah. People still listen to that song, you know.
1: I think some people get thrown off on the numbers because they think, well, if it's one stream, it should be worth X amount of pennies. And you're like, well, you have to think of it as like a radio station. Like if a radio station plays your song at like 5 o'clock, And a hundred thousand people hear it. That's only still only one play, and as opposed to a radio station puts you in a heavy rotation for weeks and weeks on end. And those hundred thousand people hear it over and over again. It's it's a little bit different. I understand the confusion. I don't think that necessarily, you know, there's the current thing with Spotify and some other places arguing that it's worth point zero zero three and not point zero zero four. Yeah. You know, yeah, that, that to me gets a little ridiculous. Yeah. Those numbers are crazy. Like it says monthly listeners, 2.5 million. And I'm just thinking like, that's a crazy number for a band that put out three albums in the nineties. And there are yeah. bands like, you know, they put out six albums in the nineties and they don't generate, those numbers but again they don't have the ubiquitous of you know single that's really a cultural signifier of the 90s it's not just a single yeah. in the same way that like seven mary three had a single i mean they had a nice pop rock song but yeah yeah does it ever show up in your daily life where you're you know on the web or something like that and something from your musical past shows up in a way that you're not <laughs> ready to to in, in the context of whatever way you're viewing it that surprises you. I mean,
4: yeah. I mean, I would say more than ever, you know, cause it's just cause something, you know, crazier, more flattering. The fact that it's been so long. So when somebody acknowledges it, acknowledges it, whether I get recognized or, you know you hear the song somewhere or whatever it just still to this day just makes you go really no kidding <laughs> you still know about my band you know what I mean I still I still have that reaction every time I'm I'm always just like just blown away you know I had no idea I mean it's what you want when you're 20 writing songs but you don't really think it's going to happen you know you don't really think anyone's going to care but I'm just grateful people do you know Shannon was a real special guy he wrote incredible songs he was a It was a one of a kind. I mean, Chip Chip knows this more. You know, probably you know more than most because he spent some time with him. But he wasn't. He was that next level of special work. You're like people are going to remember you. You know what I mean? I knew that even as a kid when I was young, with him, I just thought, man, people are going to remember you. You know, you're one of those guys. He just had a brighter, a brighter light. You know?
3: Yeah, definitely. I he was always like quick with a hug. That's what I remember. Always, big smile yeah. on his face. Like, yeah. Um, yeah, Tim. Tim, are you familiar with St. Lennox? Yeah, St. Lennox is a is a guy who started off in Columbus and has moved to New York City and puts out some records through a local Columbus label. Um, if you look at his SoundCloud page, he actually, and and he's one of the most unique artists I've ever heard. Um, yeah, uh, definitely. I don't know how to describe it. It's just very unique. But he he does a cover of Sleepy House from the first Blind Melon record. That's, oh, wow. it's, it just shows like kind of the influence. It's it's Chris, uh, Christopher I'll send it to you. It's uh, definitely yeah, an I'd interesting take. But um,
2: yeah. Have you have you been asked to uh, for that song to be used for things that uh, you've declined, movies, commercials, um... or any song? I mean, and there's a couple that uh, you know I could see with uh, all the not- I I just saw Captain Marvel which is, you know, half of the movies n- 90s nostalgia and music. So, yeah. there's definitely going to be a big run of that as we go forward the next couple of years.
4: We've gotten a couple things like that. We don't we don't do a ton of that, you know, because we own our own publishing. We don't have somebody all really out there kind of hawking it for us who has mm-hmm. a kind of skin in the game so to speak, you know what I mean? Um, so, you know, but yeah, you know, we we do stuff here and there you know when it comes up it comes up we're not aggressive about it i think we've declined a thing or two that didn't make sense but if something's cool and makes sense and it doesn't feel like it's getting overused and it's not like a commercial for like the new you know whatever you know something that i wouldn't agree with so to speak mm-hmm. you know what i mean yep. as long as it's not something like that you know but we don't do a ton of those you know
1: like crest Approaching about mouthful of cavities or something like that, <laughs> you know what I mean? No. Like, seriously,
4: like at a certain point, like it's just not going to be like you
2: know, some somebody's going to approach you about a Super Bowl commercial with a B girl, it's going to happen soon. <laughs> like, yeah, so, somebody's going to have some yeah. funny like play on that and kind of want to do that and use that That's song. that a good idea, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> a good idea.
0: I've, I've
2: been around in advertising enough, I know this is the way it works, and uh, yeah. Also, like uh, from what I understand, um, you know the people that make those decisions are followers. So if the song is used one time, other people see it and they want to use it, and all of a sudden everybody's using the same
4: sure. five songs
2: yeah. constantly. So
4: Post Malone needs to do the Super Bowl, and then he should come out and do like a version of No Rain. That'd be right. <laughs> That's my idea.
1: <laughs> that would be interesting.
2: So talk talk a little bit about like when this record came out. I mean, I know you guys from what you're saying you know uh just went in and just made what you felt at the time um you know it was not well received i guess if we just go with like rolling stone i think they gave like what one star yeah what what was how the band take all that and what was the uh honestly we were
0: fucking
4: devastated (laughs) we were just completely hit by a truck we just thought we had just made you know our version of Exile Main Street. So we were just, you know, we, we just thought we made a masterpiece. I mean, we really did, you know. In that moment, it just felt really special, everything about it, including all the crazy I'm talking about. All of that just went into this record. And, you know, you're talking about the influence of New Orleans and all that was just so thick on the tape, you know. So we we, we just thought we had really done something real special and we were kind of pumped that we didn't um, do No Rain Part Two, or, you know. We were really adventurous to him, I feel like, and I don't know, we were all, we thought we were doing great, and then the, the review started coming out, and it just was like a fucking reality check, like, oh, damn, no one likes this thing we just made that we thought was great, you know? It wasn't a good reaction, I have to say. It, it beat us up a little bit, you know?
0: Hmm. We were bummed. it took
4: it hard, I would say.
1: So that, I, I don't want to say cast a Paul, but when you guys, you know, were going out on tour then was there any sense of like well we need to prove them wrong or did you shake yes. it off
0: yes
4: yes there was that i remember sitting on the bus and just having like a pow out meeting like okay well fuck it okay this record is gonna not sell fuck it you know what i mean let's just go tour do a little tour and then let's just go back and write some more songs like we were all super pumped you mean we were we kind of like had to like tour you know what i mean like pull ourselves together come on let's do this you know but we were it hit us hard, and then we just we got it together, and that that was the attitude, you know. But we never had time to really prove ourselves because we only had a few weeks of touring, and then Shannon passed right. away, and then you know the last week was him doing, you know, not doing so well on the road. So it wasn't we weren't having amazing shows, you know. We had some at the very very beginning, and then it kind of went downhill.
2: Do you think but the?
4: I mean, I honestly think we were about to make the best record ever. The next record, I think, was probably, like, I think we pushed ourselves to one end so far, like, oh, fuck singles, blah, blah, blah. And I think we would have just kind of pulled back a little bit, delivered something that, you know what I mean, that the record company could get behind, but yet still make a great art record. I think that would have been the next record that we never got to make.
2: Do you think the reception of the record play any um, influence on him going a little harder or do you think there possibly is any relation there? I guess I I didn't, I didn't realize that you guys had taken it that hard.
4: Um, I would say, yeah, you know, I would say, yeah. I mean, how could it, how how does that not come you out? And I mean, I can't say that for sure, but I know how he felt and it was not you know he was bummed here's the thing i'm the damn guitar player nobody busts my chops in an interview yep. no one says oh the record's great but that one guitar player you know what i mean that's mm-hmm. up. but everything's about the singer so you know the reviews are not about rogers or me or glenn or you know what i mean Or Br- you know what i mean it's about Shannon.
0: Mm-hmm. right
4: and i remember he was getting like uh, people were like beating him up about lyrics and it really hurt him hard. I remember, you know, him talking to Robert Hunter about it. And Robert Hunter wrote him this really beautiful note after the Rolling Stone uh, review came out. And it just was eloquent and beautifully written. And basically it was just like, fuck those people, man. You make art. You know what I mean? Like, fuck those people, you know. Um, but it was tough, yeah. So, yeah, it definitely affected him more than all of us. And it affected all of us in a big way. And, but the singer was always going to take the heat, you know.
1: Right. And it's such a weird thing to expect people to digest an album in a short period of time and come to a conclusion as to its artistic merit and then write that up in a magazine. Whereas, you know, in a lot of cases, not just with albums, but with movies and books, it takes a long time to digest them and it takes a long time to grasp yeah. them. In their totality. Well, Think about
2: how messed up. I mean, and this is not to tutor and home, but that's this is one of the reasons why we do the show is that, um, think about that cycle. That is just so bizarre. Um, in that there's this cycle of you know the, a record comes out, everybody sits on it, does their review all at once, and then it's basically like thumbs up or down, because that starts a whole chain reaction of one, the, obviously the band and their feelings about it, but then also like the label deciding how much more they're going to invest in it and it. this whole thing like all this energy just suddenly, suddenly based on a couple shitty reviews yeah. is just thrown out the window and nobody yeah. even gives it a chance that's crazy and then, then in the 90s is I don't know there's a better decade uh than that to say of like how destructive that was because I think it ultimately like cycle after cycle it kind of ended up doing in the record industry and in, in, at least the rock industry you just burn through so many. I mean, but We have a lot
4: more options now, and, and you know. But back then, there you know, it was pre-internet, so it's like a Rolling Stone, gives you the thumbs down. You know, that's a big deal. You know, that's a right. lot. They're reaching a lot of people. That was the, that's the pipeline to the culture. Yeah. So spin is the pipeline. Rolling Stone's the pipeline. Details smaller pipeline to the culture, but Rolling Stone was the you know had the biggest pipeline. They're telling yeah. you what's cool and what's not cool you know and they told you we were cool a year before because they put us on the damn cover you know so but it is what it is you know you make records and people judge them and you know you know whatever it's not as bad these days I think because you can get more information from more people
2: yeah well you can go listen to the record now I mean um,
0: before it was you
2: you know I mean these were expensive you're talking about kids you know those will speak my my own experience and Tim's experience you know you don't have a ton of money so um, What are you going to go spend your 15 bucks on? And you can't go listen to it exactly. unless you've got a listening station. So you're yeah, either going to yeah. listen to what Rolling Stone said or you're just going to blindly go put your 15 bucks down and see what happens. And, and, yeah. and sometimes you had a... Um, and we've talked about this with some of the records we reviewed, and uh, maybe there's some fans of this record that this happened with, where maybe you didn't love it when you first got it. But, damn it, you paid $16.99 for it. And <laughs> You're going to listen to
0: it again.
2: <laughs> <laughs> You're going to listen to it again and
4: again. And You're, exactly again. Right. <laughs> You're exactly right. Yeah. You're exactly right. Yeah. It's a different time. I can't complain. I had more success than I ever imagined in my entire life. So I'm not complaining. I'm just telling you how it went down on the super record. You know what I mean? But I'm not not complaining. We had a great run and people still listening to those songs that we wrote in our 20s and people still remember Shannon. So I'm I'm all good. I'm not complaining.
1: Jay, we've shattered the one hour mark that we usually like to uh, keep this at. So uh, maybe we should uh, wrap some stuff up here on our main show and then maybe Chip could chime in with his three hours worth of stories for our bonus (laughs) content uh i know he has stuff to share yeah i think that this would be a good stopping point for the show
2: so the band is uh is the band still active what's the state of
1: i'm
4: I'm literally uh walking around in my studio right now and travis is here travis came in uh two days ago and we're making a new Blind Melon record. So I'm actually getting ready to get right back to work since I hang up the phone with you guys. So yeah, man, it's on, you know, we have, you know, this movie that we've worked so hard to get done. Uh, thanks to, you know, Danny clinch and, and, um, you know, and, and, and Taryn and Colleen, like, you know, we got this movie done. So we're, we're excited for that. There's going to be a lot going on next year with us just because of the movie alone. We'll be out there. And, um, the movie is important, you know, it's basically it's the most intimate uh, footage of Shannon. You basically feel like you're just hanging out with him for a night and uh, our good buddy chips in it.
0: <laughs>
4: and, um, you know, Shannon like recorded his whole life. So the movie is basically he shot. He shot his story. Wow. And uh, it's incredible. So, um, yeah. So, no, we're we're busy. We're busy, we're busy next year, too. We've written some great new songs I'm excited about, and we're going to go out and support, you know, some new songs and um, and support the Shannon movie and kind of celebrate his life next year, you know? I mean, really just, sh- you know, show people uh, a different side of him that they didn't see. I'm so we're excited for that. Cool. And we got into the Tribeca Film Festival, so that's going on in April. April 26th is actually the first showing at Tribeca.
1: Oh, awesome. Well, we'll look forward yeah. to, to seeing that. This is going to be a year of pretty amazing rock um documentaries and and movies we got the brainiac documentaries actually just screening at south by southwest right now and then with that coming out with cool. what's the title do you have a title
4: all all i can say
1: all i can say okay
4: yeah
1: yeah well christopher thank you I so much even
4: like an instagram there might even be some instagram called all i can say which kind of gives you updates and stuff oh, okay on the movie. yeah Well, Well, thanks, guys. I really enjoyed talking to you guys. You know, I just, I'm always blown away. Anyone still cares about those songs we wrote a long time ago, and it makes me uh, feel real good, and I do appreciate that.
1: Well, thank you for joining us. This was a real treat. I'm glad we got to talk about this record and and talk with you about it, because it was really insightful, and we love getting to talk to the people who were there.
2: And and thanks to Connor O'Donnell, who who, uh, recommended the record, and Chuck Lee. So uh, we probably wouldn't have gotten around to this episode had they not suggested it. So right. thanks, guys.
1: We rely on our listeners <laughs> yeah, to thanks, make the God. suggestions. So we can't uh, we can't talk about a record until somebody tells us to. That's how it works. <laughs> <laughs> We're forbidden. <laughs> and of course, thanks to Chip Midnight for coming back on the show and, and talking about this record with us and and um, all the stories he's going to share with us coming up. Of course, in the, in the bonus content. Of course. Uh, nice patreon.com forward slash dig me out that's where you go also iTunes for feedback and uh, yeah for Jay I'm Tim and we're out and we'll be back next week with another episode of dig me out
5: thanks for listening to support the podcast visit www.patreon.com forward slash dig me out and become a monthly subscriber at www.digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages, as well as our merchandise store at Zazzle.com. Can you
0: see-